Good morning. Oh my goodness, I don't know how many people get the privilege to come home to their home church where 23 years of my life was invested in this place. So many familiar faces, and thankfully some that I don't know. That means your church is growing, so that's a good thing too. But I, I, I have a goal to give out as many hugs as possible today, so I'll, uh, I'll hang out afterwards if I haven't had a chance to uh, hug your neck. I would love to do that. And um, if somebody looks like they're fainting, it's because they can't believe I'm standing here right now if they're really honest. Because uh, it is humbling to stand before the folks that, uh, that poured into your life, that discipled you, that scolded you for running in the church, rightfully so, and jumping over pews and hiding um, every nook and cranny. And this is, my, this is my first time to get to preach in, in this auditorium. I have so many memories wrapped up in First Baptist Church Huntingdon, uh, baptized by uh, Brother Fred right over there in that sanctuary, uh, discipled by Russ in all of the times, Angelo, that we moved uh, student ministries um, with all of the growth that occurred. And, and then right here, um, I knelt for so long, my knees went numb, uh, many of you laid hands over me and prayed for me um, as I was ordained into ministry. Uh, so many good memories. And my wife and three kids and my family. Little Bob here with us today. Gosh, this is a, this is a real treat. So what does a, what does a hometown kid come home and, and preach? What, what message would be appropriate to share with you today? I've got this theme that I think you're going you're gonna to catch on to as I go through uh, the scripture today, and it's, it's the idea, if you could have a do-over, what would you do differently, right? All of us, at some point, we would love to have a do-over. There's a moment, there's something uh, that we would absolutely love to have back. So for me, for example, uh, if I'd have known um, at a young age that I was going to be called into ministry, I might have taken Miss Marge's Bible drill a little bit more seriously, Tim. That would have been really beneficial to have known how important those verses were going to be. And Henry, maybe I would have behaved a little better in choir, and I really apologize for that. And uh, there's a lot of things that I feel like would have been really beneficial if I could go uh, back in time and have a do-over and do those again. And Just uh, so I can hear from you guys, uh, if you're playing golf, what is a do-over called? It's called a mulligan, right? We love mulligans in life. When you, when you rear back and you take that swing and you shank it into the woods, uh, depending on who you're playing with, you're allowed to have a mulligan. You're allowed to have a do-over. Um, I need a lot of do-overs in my life, moments that I wish I could take some words, a response, or an action back. Sometimes you're given it, and sometimes you just think, man, maybe the next time I'm given that chance, I'll do it differently. Uh, my wife would tell you that I need a do-over every single time. Three times she told me we were expecting kids. And even by the third one, my reaction was not that of which she was hoping for, full of joy and exuberance. It was, it was, it was just like you would imagine, like, oh gosh, now there's three. And we got to feed them and raise them. And what are we doing? I would love to have that do-over again. And I'm so grateful for them. If there was ever a guy in the Bible that would love to have a do-over, Guys, it's the Apostle Peter. Go ahead and open up to John chapter 21. You are going to see through this chapter, we're going to cover a lot of verses, how Jesus Christ orchestrates 
for a lack of better words, a divine appointment for all of the disciples, but you're going to see really a singular focus, an intentional meeting with the Apostle Peter. And why is that so important? Because you really got to understand, by the time we get to John chapter 21, the last chapter of the book of John, we are at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and Peter is not in a good place. Okay, Peter, as you recall, had the highest of spiritual highs and some of the lowest of spiritual lows, right? We're still talking about the same Peter uh, that did walk on water, that showed great faith. And when Jesus would say, uh, come and follow me, he was the first to jump and, and respond ever so quickly when everybody else was maybe a little bit hesitant. Peter, Peter was that guy. He had such bold, audacious faith, but yet when there were things that were somewhat questionable, he couldn't quite tame his mouth. And when Jesus said that he would have to be crucified, Peter kind of pulled him aside and said, Jesus, you can't say that. No, no, we're following you. Don't tell us that's going to happen. And Peter gets the strongest rebuke that Jesus ever gives. All right, so the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, Mount of Transfiguration. But here what has really just happened is Peter's in a real desolate place because he's just denied his Savior three times. Though he was told and warned he would do it, he did it anyway. Peter feels like he needs a do-over, but he has no path of taking a next step. He has no idea what he can do to reconcile this wrong, what it means to get back of living for Christ. And you're going to see that because he's gone back to his old occupation. He's fishing. He is no longer evangelizing. He is no longer going door-to-door and building churches, as we'll see him doing in the um, book of Acts. And so what stands in between you know, Peter's pinnacle moments, right? His lowest of lows. And then this same Peter is going to be so radically transformed, he's going to stand in front of the same audience that crucified Christ and point his finger at him and let them know that Jesus lives and he'll live devoted to him. What, what, what moment stands between this, this defeat and denial that he's feeling, this uselessness, and this do-over that he gets of living boldly for the rest of his days for Christ, being crucified on a cross, just like Jesus was. It's this moment that stands in between that. It's John chapter 21. I'm going to read a bunch of verses, but don't worry. We're going to talk throughout it and kind of get some context and understand what's going on here. Jesus has been buried on a cross, resurrected, and you're going to see he's about to appear to his disciples for the third time. So read with me, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way to Simon Peter, to Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and other disciples are with them. Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. And they say to him, we'll go with you. So, so yet again, though Jesus has appeared three times Right, understand the weight of that. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, has appeared before Peter now for the third time, and Peter is still going back to his old way of living. Right? What was Peter's occupation before he surrendered all of that to follow Christ? It was fishing. Right? And so though Jesus has appeared twice, now on this third time, Peter still hasn't understood Peter, that same thing that I've called you to, that same plans that I had for your life, I still mean those. I still want you to live for me. But Peter can't quite get it together, so Jesus is going to have to have a direct meeting, a divine appointment with Peter, help him understand the plans that he has for his life. And so they went out, they got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. 
And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples did not know that Jesus was on the shore. And Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? Of course, he's on the shore, so he's, he's yelling it at them. It's about 100 yards away. Do you have any fish? And they answered, no. This has nothing to do with Scripture this morning, but, but don't you hate it when you've gone hunting, fishing, playing, whatever, and somebody asks you, did you catch anything? How did you do? Because you know good and well, if you'd have had a good day and you'd have caught something, it would already be on Facebook and Instagram. They don't have to ask you if you've caught anything. The whole world knows about it because you're bragging about it. You're so excited. And we know that a, a Savior, Jesus, one with God, knows in this moment he's asking a rhetorical question. He knows they haven't caught anything. You hate it when somebody asks you, how'd you play? How'd you do? You, can't you tell by my body position, my body language, that I haven't had a good day? My sister used to do this to me all the time and just kind of mock me a little bit, just wanting to, to dig it in that I hadn't had a good day doing whatever it was. And so Jesus baits the hook just a little bit. Well, well no, well, okay, and we're going to set up. What, Pete, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to set up the first of three events, I'm going to call them, three events that are going to exactly mirror three moments that Peter had had with Jesus. And he's going to do all of this just as an act of grace because Peter, like me and maybe like you, is a, is a little thick-skulled and doesn't understand initially what it is that he's trying to call him to and restore him back into his former way of living boldly for Christ. And so it's going to take three events. This is the first one. So he says to them in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it all in because of the quantity of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's, that's John, our author for this book, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and he, because he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples, they came in the boat and they were dragging a net full of fish for they were not that far off from land. They were about a hundred yards off. The first scene that Jesus reorchestrates for Peter, this divine appointment, it mirrors the first time that he called the disciples. See, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had stood on the shore and called out to the disciples and asked them if they had caught anything. And when they said no, he tells them to cast their net on the other side. Guys, these, these are professional fishermen. The difference between the net being on the left or the right would mean nothing to you or I. If we told you to cast your reel from one side of the boat to the other, you would look at us like we were absolute idiots, that it would have no bearing whatsoever on the catch if it wasn't for something supernatural that Jesus was doing and saying, if you'll trust me, even in the little things, I'm going to radically change your life. But it's going to start by trusting and obeying me. And so it does, it mirrors the very first time in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And what's so special about this one is this is the first time that Jesus reveals his divinity to Peter. And he says to him, do not be afraid, from now on you are going to be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. I think it's so significant that the first scene that Jesus sets up, it mirrors the first time he called Peter away from a life of being the occupation of a fisherman, but to take that same heart and desire for fishing for fish and to fish for lost souls, right? To point them closer towards Christ. And so he's reminding him, hey, 
Hey, you remember that thing that I had plans for your life? Remember that first time that I called you? Remember that first time that we met, how you were fishing then and what I called you to do? Why aren't you still doing it? Why did you stop living for me? Now, Jesus doesn't have to say those words, but he's mirroring, right? He takes him back to a moment of time. He says, do you remember that time I called you? Do you remember for three years that you followed me, all those conversations? Why aren't you following me still? You see, Jesus has a goal here. His goal is to fully restore Peter. He wants to get him back to full dedication to following him. It's as almost as if he's saying, do you remember the way that you used to follow me, the way you jumped out of that boat with so much passion and excitement? I want to get you back to that old Peter, to that old way of trusting and following me, not this guy that's walking around with his head down, knowing that he's denied me three times and feels like he could never be used for ministry again. I got to get your, I got to get your chin up because I've got a calling on your life. There's churches. We, we are standing here today essentially because this moment, because Peter's life is radically transformed and he went about living for the gospel, making disciples that make disciples, and for generations, right, have paid the benefits of that. And we're standing here today because he restores Peter. What's awesome is this same Savior. This is written and recorded for us because the same way that he loved Peter, the knucklehead, outspoken person who constantly puts his foot in his mouth, is the same way that he loves me and he loves you. So maybe today you're thinking, I didn't know I came in here today thinking I, I sure would love a do-over, but I hope the Holy Spirit is going to prick at your heart today as we work through this message that maybe today could be the day that you'd get a do-over. Do-over in your marriage do-over in your finances, a do-over with your kids, with your family, a do-over in your faith. Maybe you walked out, maybe you trusted Christ, but it's been several years since you've been in God's Word, since you've worshipped Him. Right? Jesus wants to come and He wants to restore that. He wants you to know that He still has plans for your life. He wants to give you that do-over. We continue reading the first scene. He reminds him of when he first called him. So let's look at the second scene. When they got out on the land in verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire in place. If you want to underline that charcoal fire, I'll tell you something cool about that in just a minute when we get there. And so with a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on the bread, Jesus says to them, bring me some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went abroad, and he hauled the net ashore, full of large fish. And look at this. There were 153 of them, although there were so many that the net was not torn. You ever wonder the significance of details like 153 fish or uh, the fact that, he, that Peter, if you go back to verse 7, it says he had to put on his outer garment because he had taken off some layers so that he could move while he was fishing. Or, gosh, John even thought it was important that we would know that this boat was about 100 yards offshore. Why, why are those details in Scripture? I don't know. Maybe, just maybe, so because it really happened. Because if you and I were writing a great novel and telling our story, if it was 153 fish, 155 fish, or if they're Southern Baptists, we tend to round up. It's easily 200 fish. Uh, that's the kind of the way we talk when we're telling stories. We're always going to round up to the highest number that makes us look good. But that's not what John's doing. 
it's there so that we would know if you've got an honest doubter in your life and somebody that's wrestling with, can I really trust and believe in Scripture? It's because they're real recorded events. That the Holy Spirit used flawed, sinful men, but inspired them. He went before them, and they were really eyewitnesses. All right, and so they write down what they saw. He's telling you it was about 100 a, a yards off. And for some reason, John thought it was so significant that before Peter could get up and jump out into the water, he had to grab his clothes and put them on, and that they went through there and that they counted the fish. He's literally recording because he was there. All right, it just helps us know we can put our confidence, our faith in Scripture, right, that we can allow it to guide our life and our decisions. We can put our trust in it. That's why those details are there. That's why those details matter. They don't add to the story. They just give us confidence that this really is the infallible Word of God. You ever thought about the difference between a doubter and an honest doubter? We talk about this a lot at our church. See, a doubter is the hardest person that you can talk with, right? Because a doubter just doubts. Right? They don't want to know if there's truth. They don't want to believe it doesn't matter what you say or what happened or how many verses you can memorize or quote. They're just a doubter. They've made up their mind. But if you ever meet an honest doubter, all right, honest doubters are the best kind of doubters. They're having trouble believing something. All right, I'd like to think we got a lot of honest doubters around us. There's something that they're struggling with that they can't quite understand. They can't quite get their mind around why God allows this, wills this. They're asking really good questions. Honest doubters are the best because there's usually answers at the end of that. Right? You want to spend your time with honest doubters. You want them. Um, and I was talking to an apologist. He told me this is how he um, tells the difference between doubters and honest doubters. He'll open with this question. He'll say, if all of your questions about Jesus were answered, would you follow him then? If all your questions about Jesus could be answered, would you follow him? If the answer is yes, you have an honest doubter. There's something they're struggling with. There's something that they're wrestling with. And hopefully in God's time, through the power of the Holy Spirit, something's going to be revealed that's going to help them trust and put their hope and faith in him. But there's some people, friends, that they just, their heart is so hardened. All right, they're not ready to receive. And all you can do is pray for them. All right? Jesus loves running towards honest doubters. In verse 12, he says to them, come to me and let's have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? The reason that's in there, guys, is because they're really struggling, though this is the third time he's appeared. We have to understand, we can't get our mind around what a resurrected Christ would look like. It's, it's very familiar, right? It's the same person, but every time he appeared before them, it wasn't like a light bulb instantly went off. There's something that looked different about his countenance. It's not that he's in spirit form because you're going to see that he's actually going to eat fish, and I don't believe spirits can physically eat, so he is fully physically present, but he's different, right? The, the sinless Savior has died and been resurrected, and there's something different about his countenance, and they are still in awe and shock that they are standing beside him. And so they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came to them, and he broke bread, and he gave some to them, and, when, and, when they, uh, and some with the fish. Now, this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Peter. This, this is the moment where if, if this was playing out like a movie that the music would change and our attention would be drawn. It's gone from all the disciples to this divine appointment that we've talked about. It's time to bring Peter in close. All right, now why does Jesus need to bring 
Peter in close? Why does he need to have this conversation with Peter? Because remember everything that we've said, Peter feels like he has failed and there's no way to ever be restored. He feels like he has failed so bad, there's no way that Jesus could forgive him and love him and restore him. Peter is being called essentially what I felt like growing up when I'm called into the principal's office. All right, that's that feeling that he's got. And, and, and there's almost this idea that he's probably feeling like Jesus is going to tell me, like, I, I told you so. What were you thinking? I, I told you you would deny me three times, and you did it anyway. That's, that's what Peter is approaching him, thinking that Jesus is going to come and bring him in and just call him out on it. And that's not at all, not at all what Jesus does. All right, I, I think as a parent of three kids, I bet you guys have done this before too, but you actually reach an age when you're parenting, when you actually learn that instead of scolding and coming down on your kids, sometimes great parenting is, ask, is, is just asking great questions, right? It's just kind of setting it up and you're seeing if they're going to repent, if they're going to own up to their mistake, if they're going to do that. And, and Jesus has been setting up a moment where he's a series of three events. He keeps setting them up in threes. Why? Because Peter denies him three times, and he wants him to, to catch that repetition, but Jesus doesn't point his finger at him, and he doesn't call out to him. He just sets up moments. I've been a part of several great uh, parenting uh, moments where instead of, of scolding your kids and coming down on them, because there's definitely a time for that, but you, you ask a question, and maybe it's to my, to my kids when you know something went wrong and you get that email or text from the teacher or something happened on the bus and you just kind of lead to your kids and say, hey, what happened on the bus today? And they put their head down because they know that you know, right? They know that they're caught and then it's a moment where they can be honest or, uh, or not. And that's part of the test as a parent. Are they going to own up to it or are they not? Uh, I remember um, once, I'll, I'll tell on myself or my parents, they got me good. My parents had a Corvette one time, and uh, y'all, they, they went away, I thought, to Jackson or something. They must not have. And that, that Corvette was calling me. I'm, I'm just telling you. It was audibly telling me to take it out on the bypass and open it up. And I did something I'd wanted to do ever since they had had it, and I could legally drive. And I went from stop to just lifting my foot and mashing that accelerator down. And I watched that speedometer jump by double digits over and over and over and over again. And because we're in church, I won't tell you how high that I got it to go, but so much that I got nervous and scared that I was about to take off like, a, like I was in an airplane. And I let up. It was the thrill of my life to open that Corvette up. And I got it home, and I parked it in the garage. And I'm sitting in the living room acting like I've got everything together, and I've got it made in the shade. I didn't see any of y'all on the bypass. I thought I totally had gotten away with it. And my mom and dad walk in. And again, and instead of just coming in and scolding me, dad says something like, did you have fun? <laughs> You're like, well, that, that's a little open-ended. I mean, I, you know, for all he knows, maybe I just played with some friends. Yeah, yeah, dad, I had, I had fun. And then his next question, how fast did you take her? And I said, well, what? How, did, how does he know? He wasn't there. Where were y'all? It must have been one of y'all that said James is out acting like a fool. I had no idea that he knew I had done that. All right, great parenting. Instead of scolding me, he set it up, and it was a moment where I could be honest or not because I knew he had me. I knew he had caught me. I knew there was no way to lie and get out of that. All right, Jesus has set up a moment where he's calling Peter in, and he's like, look, buddy, I'm doing all this for you. I already know everything. 
You know what the beautiful thing is? He has not set this moment up so that he can forgive Peter. All right, don't miss that. This whole moment is not about forgiving Peter. Because you know what the power of the gospel is? He's already forgiven. Peter is already forgiven. He's doing all of this for Peter. Jesus isn't doing it for himself. This isn't to make Jesus feel better about being all-knowing. He knew he was going to deny him. He knew how he was going to live for him. He's ultimately going to tell him how he's going to die for him. He knows all that. He has set up this moment for Peter because he loves him. All right? So what great parenting is, is restoring people. This is what Jesus is doing. It's where we get it from. And so he's going to take him through the second scene, and he's going to remind him. And this is usually a lot of times what we'll just preach, verses 15 through 19. And so look at the the series of events and the repetition with which he's going to ask him this. And so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. He's going to say to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. Then he's going to say to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter is grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Guys, this is such a a powerful moment. A, it's the repetition of three. We know that Peter denied him three times. And and, and this, this moment that it says that he's grieved, I feel like up to this moment, up to all the appearances, I don't know that Peter understands, but I'd like to think this is the moment that Peter's kind of like putting his head down like, oh, this is it. This is why the repetition, this is, this is why you're back, this is, this is why you're going to remind me of all that, this is, this is why you're doing all of this for me, yes, then feed my sheep. And he's going to tell him in verse 18, truly I say to you that when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old you're going to stretch out your hands and another is going to dress you and they're going to carry you where you don't want to go. All right, and the stretching out your hands It's a prophetic moment of letting Peter know of the kind of death that he's going to die, that he's going to die a martyr's death, just like Jesus did, with his arms stretched out wide. And that's why if you're reading out of the ESV or whatever translation that you're going to see it, in parentheses, this is what he said to let him know the kind of death that he was going to die to glorify God. See, John, as a much older man, pens these words, and he's recalling the events of watching this conversation that Jesus has with Peter. And so the second scene that Jesus sets up to restore Peter is his denial of him three times, and it's restoring him three times. I told you that there must have been an aha moment when he, when he puts his head down and he was grieved, and it comes to him why Jesus is orchestrating all of this. If you underline the charcoal fire, if you want to turn a few pages over to John chapter 18, verse 18, you're going to see that Peter was standing beside a charcoal fire. Now that may not sound significant, but there are only two times in the New Testament that charcoal fire is used. Two times. It's the time in John chapter 21, and it's the time in John chapter 18 where Peter, and this is where it gets real for him, it wouldn't mean anything to you or I, these are trivial details, but to Peter, he knows the last time he was standing by a charcoal fire before having breakfast with Jesus, the last time he was standing by a charcoal fire. He had just denied Jesus 
three consecutive times. The last of which, which was to a 12-year-old girl who said, aren't you one of the disciples? Aren't you one of his followers? And he was so terrified for his life that he even denied following Jesus to a 12-year-old girl. That's the lowest of lows that Peter had felt. That's the shame that he feels heaped upon himself. And so Jesus, in his sovereignty and in his grace, sets up this series of events of three times, asking him because three times he denied him because he wants Peter to believe, I've already forgiven you. I love you. You're not finished. I can still use you. I still have great plans for you. Again, it wouldn't mean anything to anybody else, but if you're Peter and you knew that you had just done those things and Jesus orchestrated a series of events just to lift your head up a little bit and say, I know you did that, but I love you anyway, it would mean everything to you. I feel like the message for us today, I think Jesus would like to have a meeting with you and I and say, hey, I know you've got some regrets. I know there's some things you've said, some things you've done, some moments you would actually love to have back and have a do-over in. Jesus already knows about those. One of the greatest things about the gospel and why we can always run to him, we can come to the altar, is because we know that he's going to stand with his arms wide open. He's always ready to receive us. All right, the reason we don't reconcile in earthly relationships, the reason that I'll go multiple nights a little bit, um, wondering where Michelle and I, has she forgiven me yet or not? It's because I'm not sure because I've screwed up so bad. I'm not sure if she's ready to forgive me because I don't know if that thing I said was so dumb and so big that she's over it yet. And that's, imagine all the friendships and all the places where you'll go around with your arms crossed and you'll never reconcile. It's because you never know how the other person's going to receive it. All right, Jesus isn't like that. We never have to wonder if we can reconcile or be forgiven in Christ because he's already paid the price. Right, he says, what more do I have to do to let you know that I love you and I forgive you? Which is also why we are supposed to be so quick to forgive, because Jesus has forgiven us. All right, and so we don't get to walk around with our arms crossed, not forgiving people and holding grudges and bitterness, because Christ didn't do that for us. And our sin debt was so much greater than that thing you said or that you did. It's bigger than that. All right, and so the gospel compels us to stand with our arms wide open and always be ready to reconcile. And Jesus sets up this moment where he's like, I'm still ready to forgive you. Are you ready to forgive yourself? Are you ready to get back to what I called you to do? There's a great work to be done, and I need you, Peter. I want you to step back in. I want you to go and live boldly for me. He needs Peter to get his head up, to get his chin up, and to get back in the game and start following Christ. So if you're struggling to forgive yourself, if you're struggling to reconcile, if you're struggling to take that step of faith, I want you to know you got a Savior that says, come home. Take that step. I love you. I died for you. I'm ready for you. No matter what you've done, what you've said, come home. And that's the second event that Jesus sets up. And the last event that I want you to see here is in this last sentence. It's the very, uh, verse 19, the second half of it. And after he said all these things, he says to him, Peter, follow me. All right, so the last charge that Peter gets is a direct connection to the very first call that Peter received for his life and his ministry. Back in Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark in verse 16 and 17, Peter was doing what he did back then. He was a fisherman. 
He hadn't caught anything. And Jesus come to him and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. How good and gracious of Jesus is it? All right, that the last thing that he tells Peter, the last instruction he gives him completely mirrors the first instruction that he gave him for his life, what it should be spent doing, making disciples. He wants Peter to understand he is fully forgiven and fully restored. All he has to do is forgive himself and take the step of faith because Jesus had already forgiven him. The good news about the gospel, J.D. Greer says it this way, there's nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. Sit in that for just a second. There's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you anymore. There's nothing that you have done that can make Jesus love you any less. You understand? That's, that's the power of the cross when he paid our sins in full. And whichever one of the two it is that you seem to struggle with, for me, it was probably feeling like I had to do more things for God to earn his love. All right, I can't do that. I'm already fully loved. It doesn't matter what went in the harvest offering. It doesn't matter how many times I attended church. It doesn't matter how many verses you memorize. It doesn't matter what you teach, what you do, whatsoever. You're just fully loved. All right, sometimes my kids will ask me which one of them I love them more, and it's such a trap because I love them all. They're all three knuckleheads, and they're all three different, and I love different things about them. I love them, right? They're mine. You have a Savior that no matter what you've done, no matter what great things and how you're living for him and what you're doing, he just loves you, right? But if you're on the flip side of that and you feel like there's some things you've done that he could never love you, never forgive you, never that, then you don't understand the power of the cross, you do not understand, all right? The thief on the cross, right? You got two on each side, and what a, what a contrasting views of the gospel. One's mocking Jesus to the very end, and one says, Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? All right, that thief on the cross has no church membership, has no baptism on record, has no Sunday school, has no tithes, has no offerings. He has zero good works in his life that he can boast about. He's got nothing to brag about. All he has is faith in Christ. And what does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. We bring nothing to the cross. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've messed up, the gospel says, come home. Okay? Guys, the Christian life, do-overs in the Christian life, do you know what those are called? Repentance. Repentance. Repentance is not fun. Repentance means I have to acknowledge that I'm wrong and he's right. But the one thing I don't have to worry about is just like Jesus was never sitting there pointing his finger at, Jesus, at Peter, he was never reminding him what he did wrong, he was never shaming him, he was standing there with his arms wide open ready to hug him and love on him. Jesus wants to do the same thing for you and I. Bonhoeffer says, uh, uh, Martin Luther says that all of the Christian life is repentance. Okay, We don't get to graduate from that class. We don't get to move on. We don't get to excel at it. We, we just get a lot of practice at it. We constantly have to repent. We constantly need do-overs in our Christian life. All right, And Jesus orchestrates this series of events because he loves Peter and wants him to know, I still have plans for you. I'm not finished with you yet. You can still live for me. 
You can still trust me. You can still go forth with everything that I had planned for your life. You can still do that no matter what you've done, Peter. I want you to come home. I want you to follow me. I want you to live for me. I hope this encourages you guys. Okay, We all would love a do-over for moments in our life and in our marriages and in our homes and at school and at work and all these settings. And if we're honest, in our Christian life, like there are moments that you felt the Spirit prompting you, telling you to do something, to give something, to take a step, to go on that trip, to lead, to do whatever it is that was going before you, but you were, you were timid, you were afraid, you didn't do it. All right, and you felt like that moment passed you by, and then time goes by, and, and you start, start to put your head down, and you start to kind of go through the motions, and you feel like that passion and zeal that you once had for Christ, it's gone, and it's forgotten, and it's lost. Jesus doesn't want us to live that way. He wants us to live boldly for him. He wants us to trust him the same way that we did as a, as a young child with a new passionate faith. He's calling us back to that moment. He's calling us to repent, say, I've messed up. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me freely. Help me to go and live differently. Because repentance isn't just words. Right? It's not just acknowledging that you've been wrong. That's the first half of it. But the last half of it is a change in direction. It says, I was walking this way, leaning on my own understanding, doing what I thought was best, doing what I thought made sense, but repentance is no longer my way, Jesus' way. It's a complete 180. It's not just slightly a little bit of me and a little bit of you. It is complete trust in him. He's calling us to repent and trust him. Every moment of every day because he acknowledges I know you're gonna make mistakes I know you're gonna screw up I know you're not gonna live perfectly he knows that about you and I and all he says is I've already forgiven you your do-over is repentance let me pray for us father God before we uh, before we respond to the teaching of your word God can we just acknowledge how good and great and gracious it is that you love us so much that no matter what we've done, no matter what mistakes we've made, that you would still pursue us. God, you still run after us. You still love us. You still long for us, your creation, your children, your heirs, the sons and daughters of your kingdom. God, we thank you, God. We will never fathom this side of earth how much you love us. God, I pray as we look at this, this moment, John chapter 21, how it unfolds, and we see how much you loved the Apostle Peter, the great lengths you went to to let him know the plans that you had for his life and the, the repetitious ways that you went about showing him how much you want to restore him and for him to trust you and live for you and follow you, God. Let it be a tangible reminder of how much you love us. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.